And now, from our studios in Kansas City, Sci-Fi For Me Radio is live from the bunker. Gentlemen, we are live from the bunker. Jason Hunt here. I am the editor in chief at Sci Fi for Me. Monday! It rolls around every week, and every week it's just one of those things where it's like, ah, it's Monday. And this, especially uh, today, is going to be interesting. Okay, so uh, a couple of things, real quick, right off the bat. Uh, first of all, the live chat is open. We are broadcasting. To YouTube, Facebook, and Odyssey. And it looks like uh, everything is... uh, We'll see. The big news of the day, of course, the AT&T thing. We're going to be trying... We're going to try to put together a panel for a group discussion on that tomorrow. So stay tuned there. If you prefer uh, podcasts... Uh, we are on all the different podcast players. We're glad to have listeners from around the world on various podcast players. So we're happy to, to have you there as well. And anywhere that you find us, whether it's uh, here or live, uh, you can participate in the conversation through the chat. If you are not live, you can still leave us a comment or send us an email live from the bunker at sci fi You can suggest topics. You can suggest uh, guests for us to invite. Uh, you can give us feedback and share your thoughts on various different topics that we cover here. Sort of the letters column, as you would find in uh, newspapers and comic books. I want to very quickly take a moment and uh, shout out uh, a happy birthday to my mother and my sister. My mom's birthday was yesterday. My sister's birthday is today. And now we get into something a little bit embarrassing for me. Hello, Mazerus. Welcome. Good to see you there in the chat. So, over the weekend, we're doing prep for Good Morning Multiverse, like we do, and I ran across a story, author Hugh Howey, Howey, I believe is how he pronounces it, uh, made the announcement that he and Duncan Swan are going to be putting together a competition, a self-published competition for uh, people to uh, do, uh, you know, very basically, it is a, a the self-published science fiction competition. That's what he's officially calling it. And basically, what this is is for people who have published their first novel on their own, completely by themselves, not going through an imprint. And the qualifications are it's got to be a standalone or it's got to be first in a series and it's one book per author, all of these different things. And it needs to be a novel, not an anthology. So we got this story that's in our book section on Good Morning Multiverse. And I thought to myself, oh, Duncan Swan, he's involved in this. We did an interview with him back a while back. And so I figured I, let's, let's link to it. So I go into the archive to find the show, and I'm not finding the show. And now, this is Friday night, and it is probably somewhere around 32 o'clock in the morning as I'm going through this. And I'm doing prep, again, doing prep for Saturday morning. I'm already late as it is. And this becomes a rabbit hole as I am going through and searching for this this episode of Live from the Bunker where we interviewed Duncan Swan. I know we did it. Where is it? And no terminology, no search terms show up where this show turns out anywhere. And now, of course, in my in my fatigue, now I'm starting to wonder if we actually did it because we didn't we didn't air it, then it well I where is it? 
So I go searching for the raw recording, and I'm not finding it, and I'm, I'm thinking to myself, I know we recorded something. I know I sat and talked with him. Because now I'm going through and searching for my emails to try to find where I've sent the link to the show. Because like, hey, that's normally what I do when I, interview th- when I interview people. I will send them a link to the public-facing YouTube video, at the very least, and say, here's where you can find the show. Because a lot of times the publicists, the PR people, the marketing people want to keep track of this kind of thing. They want to keep a record, and they'll share this out in various different places. And so I didn't find any email where I sent that. Although there is email correspondence from Duncan saying, hey, I had a good time. Thanks for the, you know, thanks for the interview. So I know we did it. And after searching and searching and searching, I finally found the interview. And it's from October 20th of 2020. And for the life of me, I cannot begin to even imagine why this got buried and never never got out on the air. I don't know why that happened. Now, I going through the file, uh, it does it did require a lot of audio cleanup. So um, it it was one of those things where I I had to set it aside. It was not something that where I could just turn it around and play it back. So that might have had something to do with it, but that's not that's not an excuse. I dropped the ball on this one, and I have uh, I have all sorts of mea culpa egg on my face. I feel really, really, really bad about this. I've been kicking myself all weekend. Mindy would tell you she's not here, by the way, Mazers. She's out running errands, but. Um, but I will tell her you said hi. But I've, yeah, I'm, I'm, this is not something that I normally do. This is a rookie mistake. I mean, interns don't even make this kind of a, of a mistake very often. So I'm, I'm, I've been kicking myself quite a bit because we talked about uh, Duncan's debut novel, Monstre, which is, I believe, French for monster. And, it's an intriguing premise for a book, and so it, it, it very much deserves. You know, we, we recorded it. Duncan took his time to talk to us, and I feel really bad about dropping the ball on this. So we're going to play that interview in its entirety from October right after this. Thanks for watching Sci-Fi For Me TV. Be sure to connect with us on social media and subscribe to our channels so you don't miss our next broadcast. You're watching Sci-Fi For Me TV, delivering the multiverse since 2009. You know the film is going to end, it's going to end badly for all of these people, and you don't care. Horribly, disgusting, revolting. Did that just happen? There is no kill like overkill. I was so scared that I wanted to take my lower lip and pull it out and pull it over my head so I could cover my eyes. Foreign Bodies, Saturday at 1 p.m. Eastern, only on Sci-Fi For Me TV. And joining us now on the program all the way from, I guess, I guess we could say Los Angeles first, but uh, Australia by way of Los Angeles, South Africa by way of Australia by way of Los Angeles. <laughs> Duncan Swan is here with us. Welcome, sir. Uh, yeah, yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, I've been around the world a little bit. It's... it's uh... LA via way of Australia, via way of New Zealand, via way of South Africa. So, so how let's let's start then. This is your this is your debut novel. It's called Monstre. But I want to first of all uh, follow this path. Take me take me on this story, if you would. How how did you go from there to here? That's it. Sounds like there's there's a tale to tell. Most recently, so the. Let's go, let's go backwards. Um, okay. Most recently, uh, my wife is American. 
Um, uh, we met over in Australia eight, nine years ago, eight and a half. Um, and fairly on, she said, like, I'm moving back at some point. And she still kind of teases me, but I basically replied with, well, I'm always up for an adventure. Um, so we ended up in LA. Um, but before that, I was living in Australia for 12 years. Um, and I went there for my uh, university and my undergrad and then my master's and then to work. And before that, I was living in New Zealand with my family, where we immigrated to when I was 15. And I'm originally South African. But yeah, we kind of, I've kind of moved countries four times, but the first time was with my family and they're still all in, all in New Zealand. I've got one brother who lives in Australia now. Um, so we're kind of slowly spreading around the world. So uh, your background is in, let me see if I've got this right here. You have a degree in aerospace engineering and a master in commerce. I do. Which I would say probably, you know, eminently qualifies you to write science fiction horror. Uh, how, did, how did that come about? You, you've been playing with this. I, I understand this book has been about six years in the works. Yeah, um, it's probably six years in the works and it's for the two books. So there's like two volumes in the, in the one book. Um, so I'd like to tell myself it's three years a book. It makes me feel better about myself. <laughs> um, but no, before that, yeah. Uh, before that, I had the intention, and this is when I was leaving high school, to be an astronaut. Um, so at the time, living in New Zealand, Australia, at least Sydney, was the only place in the Southern Hemisphere that offered aerospace or aeronautical engineering as a course. Um, and on the flip side, my dad is a dentist and wanted me to kind of pursue dentistry. You know, it's a stable career, decent living, etc. Um, and I just couldn't do it. So I kind of went across to Australia, followed the, the, the sci-fi dream. I'd always been a sci-fi reader and a kind of a sci-fi enthusiast, but I thought, well, an astronaut sounds really amazing and that sounds right up my alley and I'd love to do it. And then towards the end of that, um, NASA started winding down the space shuttle program. Uh, there was a large Boeing manufacturing company in Melbourne that also shut down. Um, and it just kind of, especially considering I was still on a South African passport, kind of became this this really almost unreachable goal. Right. Um, so I kind of had to reevaluate, could I still pursue it? I mean, the, the chances of me getting into the US or in Europe on a South African passport at the time were kind of minimal. Um, so I kind of took six months off after graduating and reevaluated and went, well, where else can I use my engineering degree? Um, who's going to kind of value the maths background and ended up doing a master's in commerce and Finished that just in time for the GFC, which was ironic. Um, but luckily enough, got another job or got a job uh, working in a funds manager um, as like an analyst and a portfolio analyst. But kind of fairly early on, I realized it's not where I wanted to be. Um, I wasn't really getting the, the both sides of the brain engagement. I was using the maths brain, but everything else was kind of atrophying. Right. And I had probably six months in kind of started writing a little bit more regularly. I mean, I'd written in high school and I bounced the idea, but I bounced around the idea of being or trying to write a book, but it wasn't until I was actually working in a full-time job that I realized I needed to do something else. So I started in my little short breaks, writing at work in an Excel sheet in the cells so that it looked like I was doing work, but also <laughs> my work was, my work was hidden. Um, and it kind of just, it kind of went from there. I think 2011, this is really well back. I bought my first laptop for the intent of writing. Didn't really take it too seriously. And then uh, Hugh Howey and kind of Brent Weeks appeared on my radar. And they're both heavily influenced, A, giving it a solid shot, B, going the route that I have, which is the, the self-published route. Right. Now, you, I've, I've seen your, your Periscope uh, your Periscope video on your Twitter account that, and and you invoke those two names, uh, Brent Weeks and Hugh Howie. Neither one of them uh, seem to be steeped in horror. No. Uh, Brent Weeks is a fantasy author. Uh, Hugh Howie, pretty much straight up science fiction. So, I'm I'm assuming that their their comments, their their Q and As, and panels kind of led you into more process as opposed to the content of your stories then? Yeah, is that, is that what your takeaways were? Content-wise, yeah, no, content-wise, I honestly don't know really where the horror came from. Um, that kind of just happened organically, I guess. Um, 
I think the closest I'd have is like Peter F. Hamilton does a bit of sci-fi horror. Um, but as for Hugh and Brent, uh, Brent kind of had this great Q&A, which he touched on, where he just kind of answered questions from his fans and um, kind of humanized that whole process of writing. And I was like, oh, okay, you know, authors are people. They don't grow up under, or they don't appear under rocks. Like, you know, they have a process and they come from somewhere. And he kind of made that a bit more uh, attainable is, is the, probably the easiest word. It's like, you know, you can do that. You just have to really suck up the pain and put the time in. Right. Um, but even then I was like, well, you know, the more I dug into the, into the traditional route of publishing, it's like it just sounded almost impossible and so subjective as well. I mean, how do you even end up from getting from a slush pile to an actual editor's desk? I mean, even that jump could take from what I was reading two to three years, unless you knew somebody. And I, I didn't like almost the, the chance that you would leave it up to. Um, so, and then, so I kind of discounted writing really and I kept in my career and then Hugh Howie came along and, and Hugh Howie is the poster boy for you know, self-publishing. Um, and he kind of made it look feasible. And from that point on, I kind of started looking at writing and how I'd approach it as a business. And I was like, if I'm going to take up all the risk of writing and investing the time and the money and the sanity into the book, it seems silly to hand over the baton right at the finish line to a publisher who then takes 90% for your royalties. And, and, and maths wise, it meant, this is I think what, what Brent kind of gave me is it, it almost takes an author six books, six published books before they can kind of do that full time. Right. You can kind of rely on those revenue streams. And I was like, well, that's, if you're handing over 90% of your royalties, that's going to, that's obviously going to impact how many books you have to write to be, to be viable. So yeah, no, they didn't influence what I write, but they definitely influenced a that I write and B that, that that we've gone this route and kind of that it's worked. Well, now let me ask you this because um, the the way that uh, you you talk about approaching it as a business now most of the time when you hear people say you know this so and so author was an influence and 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 you have different people that that you look at in terms of the kinds of stories they write or their process. Now you're talking about the business aspect of things and the self-publishing, of course, we've seen a, 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 a huge proliferation of that, uh, especially when it comes to, you know, Amazon with create space and you've got the Kindle direct publishing and all of these different options. Uh, but the, the, the downside to that, I guess you could say, is the quality, you know, the, the lack of quality control, the lack of editorial. Yeah. Uh, you've got a lot of people that are just, you know, writing what they write and it goes out there. And if their baby is ugly, then then so be it. I mean, you, you have you have that part of the of the of the the production pipeline that seems to suffer a little bit when you do the self-publishing route. So yeah. when you came into this and you decided, OK, this is how I'm going to do it. What kind of what kind of homework did you have to do in order to prep? I mean, not just not not on the story part, but yeah. you're looking at it now. Yeah, you're looking at it now, like you say, the two sides of the brain. You know, you've got the story aspects on one side, and then now you've got the the actual production part of it. So, what kind of research did you do on that? What did you have to learn? Oh, wow, a lot. Um, we, we kind of we kind of looked at it from the terms of perspective of, I mean, the, the traditional publishers are there for a reason. I mean, they provide all these services to the author and those services are kind of, uh, I'd say like uh, the, the cornerstone of making a book successful as, you know, the professional, pro professional production appearance, you got your editing, um, all the marketing, um, and they're just, I guess, training for authors. So if as a self-publisher, you want to kind of have the same product at the end of the day, it kind of leads to reason that you need to have some of those same services or the same people feed in. So we kind of went at it. And when I say we, I mean me and my wife, because she's kind of been the, the little engine in that could always pushing at the back. Um, and we kind of went, well, look, we need to obviously outsource or find people to help us do these certain things and provide these services because I mean, I can write, but I'm not a professional editor. Um, I'm not a social media guru. Um, 
if we want to get it, if we want publicity, we're probably not the right people to do it either. So we've kind of really gone about it and going, what are we good at? And then what can we not do? And who can we find to do that? And that's really been our research is, is using networks and word of mouth and, and people vouching for, like, um, I think it's how I met one of my editors, Clay, was actually through a connection of my wife. And we've basically just gone through and, and built a team around us. And then as a side effect or as a, as a part of that, created our own publishing company anyway. I mean, it's small and it's just my book, but it, it, it helps make it more kind of real or authentic, I guess. Sure. Well, and I would imagine with something like that, you're probably uh, more fully invested in making sure that all of the I's are dotted, all the T's are crossed. We want to make sure that we get this thing just so, because now you have a, now you have a process you can duplicate with other books, not just yes. yours. But it, as you say, if you're if you're starting a publishing imprint, are you already thinking about publishing other authors, or you haven't gotten there yet? Haven't gotten there yet. I mean, I'm I'm very much at this point, and, and since this whole year really has been launching this, has been about launching Monstre. Right. Um, and next year, I have got a strong feeling, and the rest of this year, this year is going to be very much about launching Volume Two. Um, and then we can kind of sit back and kind of see where we are in terms of, uh, lack of a better word, success. Um, and can we grow the business? And then, you know, is there interest for other people to join up? I, 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 yeah, I'll have to look at that at the time. Um, if the opportunity arises, then there's something beeping right next to me. That's great. <laughs> um, yeah, if the opportunity arises, I think we'll look at it then. Um, but now it is it's kind of just get this up and running and, and get it functional and kind of self-sustaining. Because I need, I need volume one to pay for volume two to pay for the next book, etc. Sure. Well, and I imagine you also need to pay for the graphic design of the website. Let's show that because this is very impressive. Uh, <laughs> well, most, yeah, that's all been paid for now. Most, uh, most self-publishing or you know, most uh, uh, authors who are just starting out, uh, they don't have this kind of a presence online. You seem to be ahead of the curve on this just a little bit. I, I kind of looked at it as in terms of, you know, first impressions really count, yeah. especially especially as a self-published author, because, you know, a lot of that quality control issue kind of sits in there. So if you're going to have a debut as a self-published, you really need to look the exact opposite of almost like the, the classic self-published. Like you, you need to dial it up to 100 and kind of give the best impression you possibly can. Yeah. Because it's going to follow you. So, yeah, we kind of kind of pull out all the stops and funnily enough i really enjoyed this whole website design part i mean i was playing with it for years and then kind of got the functionality right and then teamed up with a, a designer um he's also one of my graphic art designers uh, aline steinbach and she made it pretty um <laughs> yeah and then i you know it's, it's kind of a great place to kind of showcase all the artists and, and designers and uh, people i've worked with really well, and that's the that's the next thing here I wanted to go through because this is this is something that I don't really see in terms of novels uh, so much, especially uh, you know first time novels. For, you know, this is your debut, but now you've got all of this graphic design, all of these, all of all of this concept art for a for a novel. This is not a graphic novel. This is not a comic book. This is not. You know, you're not designing a movie, but you've got all this concept art for for the story. So take take me through what was what was your thinking behind doing this? Um, same again. Um, if we were going to do this by ourselves, um, if we're going to really market this product at the end, how do you market a book? Um, and that was one of the, the stumbling points I kept coming across. Is that it? It seemed very much like a a field of dreams issue where you, you write a book and then you think magically people are going to find out about it, um, hear about it. So it's a case of I wanted to market the book like you would market a movie, and that's kind of you know trailers or posters or visual medium. Um, and then it kind of grew from there in terms of, well, if, if I want to have a few like uh, realistic-looking concept art pieces like a digital man painting style that could really lend to, that's, that's one of the examples, uh, it's an artist called Chris Gold. Um, it could lend itself to looking like a movie. Uh, I'd also like to play around with stuff that could look like a graphic novel um, or a, a comic, etc. And 
it kind of let me, that's a Laurie Grizzly piece, it kind of let me diversify um, who I might appeal to and also who I could work with in the network. And it kind of just snowballed in terms of, I really, for some reason, I like, once I discovered, I, I like coming up with a brief. I mean, I have a visual image in my head and then half of the challenge is getting it down on paper and explaining in a way that an artist can take that and kind of make it real. Sure. Um, so yeah, it, it kind of grew out of necessity to me, at least, of uh, how do I market this thing so that somebody can stumble across it? And I think visual images, for lack of a better, to be a little bit of a pun here, you know, they paint a thousand words. Um, and I, I figured, you know, it great, it like it, it's a nice kind of entryway or introduction into the world that I'm trying to make. And Monstra lends itself to being a very, very visual world. I mean, you know. It, and, and stars align a movie down the down the line would be great now there are uh there are a lot of people and and we see this uh i i have seen discussions in the comics uh side of things most especially a lot of people talking about crowdfunding a lot of people talking about uh, uh doing independent work and over the last couple of years there has there have been a lot of people uh, criticizing the comics industry, basically saying, you know, if you're writing for comics, then you should be writing for comics. Don't do your Netflix pitch in the comic book. Write the comic book, and and the priority should be the medium in which you're working. And 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 it sounds like you've got the book done. Mm-hmm. <coughs> excuse me. And now you're thinking about the ancillary work. Did did that come in a progression of order? Or was it all all at once? Oh, this this would make a cool movie as you're writing it. Or? Um, I think I think as Monstro went along, and I mean it, it started purely as like as a really basic idea, but then as it gathered steam and I kind of fleshed out the story and the world, um, I really wanted to do something a little bit original. Uh, every I think every author kind of says that, but I figured if I can. If I could pull the story off the way that I wanted to, then it is technically an original story, and it's an original story in terms of being visual. Mm-hmm. Um, but the amount of art that I had done, and, and I guess the types of work, definitely grew out of just the scope of the project as it kind of continued. It, it originally just started with me kind of tracking down an artist in Sydney who could at least design this monster for me. I mean, I wanted something consistent and a little bit different, but I wanted to give them some free reign to use their own kind of creative juices. And so we kind of, uh, I came up with the design, well, I came up with the, the brief and they came up with the concept. And then from there, we got the cover done. And then wally has got the, the art piece for the cover done. And from that, it got um, turned into an actual cover piece because we worked with a, a brand designer who did the author tag and the, and the monster title. And then it just kind of kept going. I kept kind of finding people whose work I really liked and went, wow, that would actually transfer or translate really well to Monstro. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it was kind of just question, you know, a question of me sending people emails saying, are you accepting commissions? Um, and it was so great. And then we kind of stuck, struck up a conversation. And six years later, I have a bunch of great art that I really like and hope to keep adding to. And since Monstro came out, I've added one piece and added two pieces, actually. One was a fan art piece, which blew me away. Um, and I wasn't expecting that early. And then I kind of contacted the guy and said, would you like doing another one? But I'll actually pay you for this. So it's it, it's bringing in additional almost fans that I probably wouldn't have found out. So it, it's worked how I had hoped it would work, but also better than I'd hoped. So ultimately, what do you do with the concept art? I mean, it looks great on the website, but it's uh, I, I, I'm assuming it's not going to be in the book. Um, are these are these stretch goals? These prints that go with the Kickstarter, or how? What would you what would you do with the concept art now that the book is out? Um, for the most part, just kind of share it around Pinterest and and Imgur or Reddit or on my Twitter or on my Instagram. I mean, at the end of the day, it's content, and you can't necessarily have um, a fan base or a follow base if you're not generating anything. And, right. and generating a book takes a long time. Um, but I kind of want to keep putting out work that reminds people of the world or, you know, kind of instill some interest. And I think working with artists who are amazing in, the, in their own right, 
is also a great way for me to piggyback the skill set, but kind of keep growing the world that I've created. And it, it, it lets me do something or release something before, you know, before the next book comes out, which for Monster Volume 2 is next, next winter. But for the book after that, hopefully less than three years. Yeah. Um, but yeah it's, yeah, it's not, yeah, it's not a normal path that I've taken. So we've talked, uh, we mentioned just briefly the Kickstarter. I want to get into that in just a second. But first of all, we've gone this far and we haven't really talked much about the story that's in the yes. book. We've seen the cloud, we've seen the monsters. So how do the, how does that all fit together? Give me the, give me the, the pre on, on this story. Um, so it's, it's I'll, I'll do really a kind of broad umbrella view. It's, it's an end of the world story. Um, uh, it's it shares some similarities with Alien, World War Z, uh, Pitch Black, and Generation Kill. It kind of gives you your tone and, and kind of elements in the, in the in the book itself. But it's a, it's an end of the world story. It's based well, it starts in France, starts on the borderline border of France and Switzerland at CERN. So there's a there's an accident, and as a result of this accident, you have um, this large plume of, of toxic smoke and ash and gas pouring into the sky and this basically starts to spread out across Europe, um, and it's, it's centralized in, in Switzerland. So it basically spreads out equally from each, each in each direction. And as time goes on, um, it just continues to grow. And uh, there's two storylines, and this is the tr tricky part with Monster. There's a, a side in, in the U.S. and there's a side in France where it starts. And so the France is like day zero, and the U.S. starts at day 89. Right. Um, and basically, what it does is it kind of shows you the the, the effects as the cloud kind of originates in Europe and spreads out and what people try to do to A, understand, B, react, run away, etc. And in the US, three months later, where any attempts in, in France have effectively failed and the cloud is still coming and they now are privy to the knowledge of what's basically awaiting them in the cloud and what they're, where, where at which point, it's kind of a case of people know when they're going to die and I wanted a story where it, it's the it's the kind of how do they react to that? What do people's decisions lead them down to? What are they willing to do to survive if you can survive? Um, so yeah, it's kind of a World War Z. The stand in the U.S. is probably the closest analogy I've heard people making. Uh, and then the French side is more like a pitch black aliens homage. Now, I would imagine that when you first started on this, uh, you probably did not have any anticipation that the scientists at the Large Hadron Collider would decide, "Hey, let's try to let's try to open up a, a hole to a parallel universe." Uh, yeah, it when when those kind of things happen, it, it's always it always strikes me as uh, as interesting when real life catches up to science fiction. The speculative fiction gets up to a certain point, yeah. and now we've gotten to where we're almost not quite keeping ahead with our imagination as opposed to what reality is trying to do. Does it, does it, uh, does it ever affect in the process here as you're going through your story and you're looking at the news, and you're looking at what's going on in the world. How much of a of a of a change do you think maybe you have to do to to stay ahead of it, or did you keep the integrity of the story was pretty much the same start to finish? The integrity is pretty much fine. I mean, I was more worried with CERN becoming irrelevant in terms of no longer doing really groundbreaking kind of scientific research after the discovery of the God particle, et cetera. And I mean, in part, I was kind of trying to tap into all the conspiracies of theories that float around around CERN. I mean, it, people have been proposing that it's going to cause the end of the world for since they began designing the thing. So right. I kind of wanted that to be at the background of people's psyche. Um, so I was just more worried that <laughs> Funnily enough, I was more worried the world was going to end before my book actually became out. So, and then and then COVID hit anyway, and I was like, "You've got to be joking!" Yeah, well, it's almost. Uh, there are some days it almost seems like that would be the easy way out, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I I don't know if I'd like to go the way 
that my book goes. I don't think that's a world I would want to live in or check out in, but yeah, it's are we year to release it. Are we at a point where maybe it's time to tell a different kind of future story than the dystopia disaster world's going to end? Um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I almost want to... I mean, I think everybody hopes for the utopia kind of story. And I think the reason dystopian stories are so popular is because we see so much dysfunction in the world. And I think through mankind's history, it's, it's, there's been dysfunction and, and disaster and kind of tragedy. Um, and while I, yeah, I, I would love some more utopian books, I, I don't think people's mindsets are kind of aligned that way yet. Right. Um, I just, yeah, I, I don't know if that'd even sell if you try to write a story like that in the U.S. Or maybe it would. Maybe I'm well just making things up. Well, let me ask you this: Growing up outside the U.S., what uh, what kind of science fiction, fantasy, horror did you get into? Because I would imagine that your influences might not be the the same as somebody who grew up in the in the states. Um. It. You know. It, I'd say it's almost very similar. I mean. I, if I'd stayed in South Africa, probably different. Um, but because I'd bounced around quite a few times beforehand, I mean, I'd already had a slightly wider worldview and most of my friends, especially in Australia, were internationals anyway. Um, and most, you know, I mean, most of Australia, New Zealand, etc., is kind of very US Western leaning anyway in terms of the, the media that we get and the, the source material and the books that are popular. It's pretty much par for par the same. Um, and then in terms of sci-fi authors or books that I read, I mean, I got introduced to Peter F. Hamilton in high school, say when I was 16, mm -hmm. somewhere around there. And I, I think before that, I'd read a lot of like the softer stuff, like Anne McCaffrey, and, um, which is almost borderline fantasy. Uh, and who else? Like the Red Mars, Blue Mars. Who's that author again? Kim Stanley Robinson. That's the one. Yep. So I was very much like kind of like a hot sci-fi happy sci-fi reader and then Peter F. Hamilton came along with his rea reality dysfunction thing and that kind of just made me realize ah sci-fi can be kind of creepy and sort of magic based as well and that that just hit a note with me and I, I kind of have always gone down that path since and then I guess you as well like with your fantasy stuff you've had a lot of grimdark coming out in the last eight years and that's yeah. obviously heavily influenced my writing and the heavily influenced how I try to write characters, I think, is that everybody's a little bit more flawed, whereas sci-fi in the 80s, 90s, etc., was a little bit more utopian, happy. You know, there's a, there's, there's a great future awaiting us. And I think over the last 20 years, a lot of people have kind of not lost faith in it, but maybe wonder that you know, it's not as happy and roses as we'd like. Right. Now, if, if you were... Uh, you were talking about this possibly going into a third book. Is is this, you know, especially in the, you talk about the last eight or, eight or ten years with this, with the the dystopian view, there have been a number of debates, uh, criticisms, back and forth, you know, give and take, neener, neener, neener type of thing online where people talk about uh, the political side, you know, science fiction has always been political and, and that kind of thing. And you get into these dystopian worlds and there are a lot of those stories that are very much have some sort of a political aspect to it. Whether it's a message from the author or not is the is the bigger question. So when you get into this this story about monsters coming out of science and this, you know, end of the world apocalypse type of thing, at any point in all of this, are you trying to get people to think about a particular idea? You're trying to get across a certain message? Or is this just, let's tell scary stories around the campfire for a couple of hours? Um, no, I, I think the underlying message that maybe wasn't deliberate, but is definitely there, is that, is that you can try as hard as you want to do all um, 
I think you can do, uh, in terms of this book, it's kind of, you can do your best to survive, but survival is not guaranteed. And I kind of wanted to, in my my book's about messages, that, is that happy endings aren't guaranteed. And the only thing that I really tried to achieve was, was move away from a lot of the tropes that I saw in sci-fi books, where, or even just books in general, where you have your classic hero who's got plot armor 10 inches thick and nothing can touch them. And there's none of that kind of, threat to the character of the story. You always know that they're going to succeed at the end. And I kind of wanted to write something where it, that's definitely not a guarantee. Um, and you kind of make it a bit more realistic in terms of possible outcomes. I mean, sure. Great, great example. I mean, Armageddon. Like, are you really going to fly a bunch of drillers to save the world from an astronaut? Or are you going to probably send people who've spent most of their careers in space dealing with space stuff? So I kind of wanted a little bit less, um, Oh my God, what's that? Who's the director of that? Michael Bay. I wanted a little, a little less Michael Bay and maybe a little bit more um, kind of Cormac McCarthy from the road where it's just, yeah. it's, it's a bit more brutal. So let's, uh, let's talk about the Kickstarter here for a second because there are two major crowdfunding platforms. There's Kickstarter, there's Indiegogo. So from a business aspect, you guys are, are very focused on studying all of that, doing your research. What was the deciding factor in, in determining that you're going to go with Kickstarter as opposed to Indiegogo? Let's start there. Uh, um, it's like five months ago now. I think, I think it was just purely in terms of nominal value that Kickstarter raises every year. I could be wrong, but I thought that Kickstarter was a slightly larger platform um, and that it had a slightly large component of books. I might be wrong, but I think those were our two deciding factors. Um, because other than that, they're very much kind of like product-based design, right? You know, proof of concept kind of projects that Kickstarter and or Indiegogo do does. Um, but Kickstarter did have a, a a book kind of artist creative side to it. I mean, comics are fairly common in there. Graphic novels are very common. And yeah, that kind of just we went from there. We picked a platform and then sunk some time into making a project or a, a backer project that people would hopefully respond to. Now, you went over your goal. Congratulations. Thank you. Is this, uh, and I know Indiegogo has the in-demand feature. Is this still funding in some way or it's completely no, no, done? No. It's completely done. Okay. Yeah, Kickstarter, Kickstarter runs for the length of your campaign and then either either fund or you don't. Um, right. We did start getting approached towards the end by other platforms that would let you continue funding, but we'd reached our goal. Um, our goal was 10, we raised 12. Um, and that was purely to get ARCs printed. So we, we kind of hit that goal and we we're like, well, we're, we're funded. That's what we need. Um, everything after that is is getting the word out and getting the book out and hopefully selling the book. Right. So um, yeah. So this particular this particular uh, fundraiser was just to get the advanced copies for people to review. Correct. So what's the plan for rolling out an actual publication that you know people can go into the bookstore and they pull it off the shelf? Um, so we're obviously we're on Amazon and we're through KDP. Um, so they have those on demand printing, etc. But for bookstores, generally speaking, Ingram Spark is the is the biggest supplier. Okay. Um, who is also one of our uh, printers. Um, it's more a question now of building up enough ground support and demand so that the bookstores stock it automatically. Whereas if you go into, say, Barnes & Noble, you can also, I mean, you can request a Monstre and they'll get one delivered to the store and here you go. Um, but we don't exactly have, you know, that, that front desk space yet or real estate and that's generally owned by the big publishers anyway. Yeah. Um, but no, it's... I'm, I'm hoping it's coming. Um, I would love to go into a bookstore and actually see a whole line of them, but that'd be, yeah, it just depends on, on how much, how much buy-in we get and how quickly that kind of happens. Now, what's the, what's the reasoning behind the title Monstre? Because I've, I'm going to look at this. You're going to have somebody that's going to walk in there and they're going to go up to the counter and they're going to say, that's spelled wrong. That's, that's not, yeah, no, no, all right. That's, what's, uh, that's one of the running jokes we've gotten so far is a lot of people said, oh, you've spelled monster wrong. I'm like, yeah. I didn't spell it wrong. It's, uh, <laughs> it's French for monster. You know, it's, it's based in France. The, the beginning, most of the half of the story is based in France. So I kind of wanted a, and they are the first, at least, I guess you'd say characters that come into contact with a monster and it's monstre. Yeah. yeah, just French for monster. 
So you've got volume one, volume two, uh, I believe is, is written. You said you've got plans for that to be out by summer. Uh, winter 2021, so next fall. Okay. Um, yeah, it's it's 90% written. It's gone through a rough edit. It needs quite a bit of more work, but you know the, the heavy lifting is, is done. Thank goodness. And you're married. Uh, how how has how has uh, the missus taken all of this process? Because this is you know I quit my job. I've got my savings. I'm going to go yeah, write a I book. I mean that's that's a scary cliff to jump off of, especially. She that, yeah, she was the one that pushed me. So oh yeah, I blame it on her. <laughs> I was just standing on this edge looking, and she went shove. So I blame her. Um, but no, her her. I think she's the most patient, supportive person I've ever met. Yeah. We wouldn't have made it without her. Um, but no, it's definitely been a team effort, and it's definitely been a lot more stressful than either one of us could ever have anticipated. And um, funnily enough, before, before Monstria was the book that, that is, it is now, I was writing something else, and we kind of based, based everything off that book and had this great timeline for when it to be out, and then completely blew past it and then it got shelved anyway and Monstre is what we ended up settling on so we, we took a jump and then changed where we were going to land halfway through the through the fall really now how involved has she been in all of this because you're writing the book and I imagine she's probably giving you a lot of feedback you're kicking a lot of ideas around but well, did she I mean, she kind of let you do your thing or she's she right me, there she let me do my thing um, I also don't let her read anything until I'm happy with it Right. I mean, I, I, I hate somebody leaning over my shoulder to read. It A, makes me super self-conscious, but B, like, when I'm comfortable with somebody reading it, you can read it, and that kind of transfers to her as well. Um, but my, my wife, Christine, is a, she's in marketing. She's a strategy director, so she's actually been an amazing, an amazing resource to tap into, um, half because selling products and you know, analyzing people's taste or techniques or at least you know having having ears in the industry or like your, your ear to the ground in the industry and setting up contact she's been invaluable so yep. i joke that's why i married her <laughs> really for her contact but no um she was very much like the one who pushed me and then kept pushing as we kept going yeah now you talk about her being a resource in, in terms of the actual process of writing the story and and, and collecting all of the resources around how much how much of that how much research uh, went into the world building? Are you just, are you just, you know, because some, some authors fly by the seat of their pants, they just make it up. And some of them, they get so meticulous and detailed and spreadsheets and lists and notebooks. Where, where do you fit on, on that? I, I kind of, I'm much more of a pantser in the way that I write, so I don't necessarily know I need something until I get to that point in the story. Mm. Um, what I generally do is I know where the story needs to get to, and then I kind of work out how to get there through the character's behavior and actions. Um, and then that often leads me to solving problems. So I kind of try approach writing as a problem-solving exercise, and that then kind of butts me up against issues in the book. And I generally do my research around A, trying to solve the problem, mitigate the problem or you know, in terms of providing tools to the, to the, to the character, that's when I go sink my research into weapons or technology or location. Um, some of the most time consuming stuff actually was literally just plotting out the route that my US survivors would take through, through the country. I mean, sure. I had to kind of determine what states they're going through, what highways they're kind of going through, what towns they might encounter if the town is large, what's the risk of them running it to people? And that kind of stuff was a lot of just Google Maps. Um, but in terms of spreadsheets, the only spreadsheet I ever made was a, was a swear word spreadsheet. Just to, tally, <laughs> just to tally how many F-bombs that I had so that I wasn't overdoing it. Uh, now, you mentioned the, the survivors. They're going out west. Part of, the, part of this story, you have an, uh, a sheriff and he's protecting a family. They're going out west. There's a rumor about a nuclear bunker, uh, an underground bunker. 
is NORAD. Is, is that uh, that was my first thought? Was was you're looking at something like that? Is that where they're they're going then? Or yeah, I mean that's that's their their pie in the sky goal is a, is a bunker like NORAD somewhere that's obviously underground, airtight, so that the cloud and the air can't get in and the monsters, etc. Um, and then obviously something that's kind of top of mind in, in people's base knowledge. Um, and yeah, I think NORAD's been the classic from Stargate to, I think, Deep Impact. It's even in there as well. It's just, yeah, it's the old base under a mountain. Yeah. Now, yeah. when when you talk about this being Volume 1, Volume 2, a lot of times people are going to sit there and go, oh, well, this is a cliffhanger. I'm not going to get an ending. Is this a self-contained uh, self-contained arc in uh, in each book, or are you going to have to read both of them in order to get the whole story? Um, you'll, you'll need to read both to get the whole story. Um, but in terms of like, what I try to do is at least close up arcs for certain characters within each bit, and also in terms of mini arcs. And they've tried to achieve X, they've achieved X, but and that, it's that but that is where Volume Two hopefully comes in and kind of ties up what the what the twist was or the trick was. Um, but it was never meant to be two volumes. It was always meant to be one big fat book. And then through discussions with our publicist, um, Sarah Miniachi with Smith, with Smith Publicity, her advice and, and their advice was that as a debut, um, you can have a lot of trouble kind of selling a thousand page book to, to readers. Um, sure. So their advice was to split it. And luckily enough, it split at a really nice point. Um, and we worked to make it work, worked to make it work. Um, but yeah, there's a cliffhanger that's annoyed a lot of people, but also it's, it's annoyed them in the right way. So their interest is piqued and hopefully they stick around. And yeah, it, it worked out the best, I think, of both worlds, the way we split it and then the way we released it. Yeah, and you, and talk, that, yeah. you talk about uh, the, the people being annoyed at the, at the cliffhanger. Imagine you had a number of beta readers, people who are, are, are getting into this along the way. What kind of feedback did you get from them? And and was there, I would imagine, there might have been those moments of trepidation right before you handed it over. I mean, they're going to tell you your baby's ugly here, yeah, uh, yeah. and, and well, now you have to deal with it. That's kind of what you need to hear. Right. Uh, and that's one of the, I think, one of my strongest skills, I think, is or strengths, I guess, is that I can take feedback fairly well. Um, and feedback is one of the most constructive parts you can get to a story. And yeah. the, the harsher the feedback and the more impartial it is, the better for you as an author and the better for your story as an author. And like, I'm still getting feedback now that it's out there. Um, and it's great feedback and it's stuff like, yep, I should have been aware of that. I'll pay attention to that next time. Um, but yeah, for the early beta readers, like it's, it's, it's very much like, here's my baby. Be, please be kind. But in the same breath, like, please tell me what's wrong with my baby because there's still time to fix it. Yeah. So yeah, you need those those people that are who are honest with you, and and I luckily enough surround myself with some really good friends who've been insulting me my entire life. So it's okay. <laughs> so once the the second book is out and and it's and it's out there in the world and it's essentially done, what's next? Uh, is there a volume three, or you're going to go in a completely new direction with a brand new story? Uh, I'm probably going to go in a completely different direction purely because when volume two is out, like the arcs for all those characters is done. Okay. That, that story is self-contained. At least it's, it's finished and it's, it's finalized. Whereas uh, the next book, if I did one in that series, which I'd love to do, but it's going to be probably set 10 years after the fact. So now the world's changed again. Now everybody's, you know, the cloud is effectively one and the monsters have won. Um, and now what are people doing? Like, do we, and then I'll have to go from there. Um, yeah. But no, it's, I, I, yeah, I'm going to have to really flip a coin and say, do I do something entirely new given everything that I've learned or do I stick to this and, uh, and try a different avenue in it? Um, I'm kind of leaning to the first option, just do something with a few less characters um, and a little bit smaller in scale just so that it doesn't take me six years. <laughs> Now, there is a, a series of books that's set in the universe of V, uh, the original miniseries and, and such. And you had, in the, in the miniseries on, on, uh, on ABC, you had the events as they played out in Los Angeles. And then you had the series of books that came afterwards. You saw that same 
sequence of events as it played out in New York, as it played out in Chicago. So you get these different books that are all happening at the same time with right. the certain with that that beginning inciting incident all yeah. being the same. Is there a is there a way that you tell this story from different perspectives? Maybe maybe there's one in London, one in Germany, one in Australia. That's yeah. Well, that's kind of the the strength I think of Monstres because it's a worldwide catastrophe. In part, the problem is picking which perspective to tell it from. I mean, I can always I could always revisit it from a different angle. Um, yeah, yeah, I could. Um, I think I've got something like 20 characters in this book as it is. So there's always more room to add more. Not to give you any more on your pile, of course, but, you know, there's always, it, you, it, when when you start kicking around ideas, you think, oh, well, I could do this and I could do that and I could do that. That's the, yeah, that's Some, the problem with being, being a writer is that you have too many ideas and you yeah. need to pick one. Um, that's the catch. Like, that's the real big catch is it, you've only got a limited amount of time. What's your what's your brainstorming process when you're coming up with ideas? Is that just things that pop into your head? Or are you are you actively searching through like news reports, science uh, digest, or anything like that? For they kind of just pop into my head in terms of if I've been consuming. I mean, Monstro grew out of a movie, which has almost nothing to do with Monstro as a book anymore. So I saw a movie called The Darkness with Jody Jody Picoult. Um, and it's very much like a supernatural, uh, supernatural based story where at the end of the movie, a ritual that was kind of suspended, but is completed with the death of the father, um, this house that these people are in kind of crosses over to somewhere else, right. somewhere of pure, pure darkness, the hell, I don't know where it was meant to be. Um, but these people are still in this house. But now there are these other things in the house with them and they're kind of tempting them to like turn the lights out and come to them in the dark. And that's kind of where Monster grew from. It wasn't something that I've been reading or even researching for. I just thought that's a really cool idea. Um, but I'm going to make it aliens. And it kind of just went from there. Um, and then, yeah, the rest of the time, I'm, I'll be randomly sitting outside and I'll have an idea and I'll write it down. But yeah, they, they kind of just organically pop into my head. Now, the question is... Out of that list, do you have one that's just really hanging on that this is the one that I really want to tell? This story is the one that I want to tell. Now that I've got this one out, out of the way, Monster is done. This one is sitting here and it's got the the golden halo and the and the cat with the quest is handing it to you saying, here, this is the next one. <laughs> Not to t push myself into a corner. I've got <laughs> the, the the nagging pressure of one that's kind of rising above the others, um, but it's going to be it's going to be more of a singular POV kind of style as opposed to multiple POVs. Right. Um, and that's something like uh, for my own growth and just for my own practice and experience, I'd, li I'd like to kind of just develop fewer characters. Um, and really sink some time to making something that uh, I, I might be able to serialize if I wanted to. Like it, it kind of really hurts hurts volume two, three, four, etc. If you kill all your characters. Oh sure. <laughs> you really kind of yeah. You have to start from scratch every time. So for my own you know sanity and, and process, uh, there's one that is that's kind of looking as a top contender, um, and it'll be sci-fi based, probably very fairly gory like Monstre was um, but it won't be a kind of a apocalyptic tale now throughout this entire process this being a first book it's it's the first one that you've written it's the first one you've published and and mm -hmm. you've gone through all of this what have you learned things that you might do differently on the next one but also what have you learned about yourself in how you've approached the work? Not just on on the creative side of things, but on the business side of things. Did you did you gain some insight into yourself? In oh, I could have handled that better, or I didn't realize that this would bother me, or I didn't think I was this good at it, but it turns out I'm good at it. Um, ooh, layered question. Um, in, in part. Personally, I've had to kind of 
develop a lot more hubris or oh, not hubris uh, humility mm. I kind of started this with an overabundance of confidence which i highly recommend to any author who decides <laughs> to write a book you need an overabundance of confidence yes um my biggest stumbling point was the expectation of when i would have it completed by like it was these these goal posts that were at the time reasonable but as things progressed and i learned more and it developed um unattainable so that goal post kind of kept moving from a year well, my health. I think we were when we first started. We thought, "Oh, we'll be done in six months," because I'd, I'd finished the book that I thought. Um, and then it became a year, and it became two, and it became three. And through that, that that's kind of really humbled me in terms of, you know, like, I gave up my job to kind of write. So finances were tight. Um, I was sinking and investing every cent that I had into this project. So it's very much a um, burn the ships behind you kind of. Right. That personally was a lot of pressure that I'm, I don't think I was quite ready for. So I'm glad I've come through the other side. Um, going into the next one, I at least know how long it takes me to write something. And now it's just a question of improving that that, that process and making it more streamlined and efficient. Um, and then uh, luckily enough, as well as this has gone along, I've made some great relationship, relationships with my two editors. Um, Krista Watanabe and Clay Bole. And through that, uh, I think we can kind of streamline this whole thing again um, from the outset. So yeah, patience. Patience was the one thing I really learned. Um, and yeah, not so much business-wise. I mean, I think everything we've, everything we've done so far has been a first time. Um, so everything's been a learning experience. Right. Uh, even designing the website was a learning experience. Um, and I, I sunk hours into coding bits of that website with custom CSS. Um, and so I think for the next book, the, the, the big benefit of the way we've done it this way is like you said earlier, is that, that groundwork has kind of been laid. Um, now it's just building. I don't necessarily have to juggle 10 balls. I might just be able to juggle three or four. Sure. Um, so I'm kind of looking forward to that. That Yeah, it's, I'd almost, it almost says as, as a debut, the hardest, well, the, the, the largest workload is your first book because there's everything else in the background that's completely unrelated to writing that needs to happen as well. Yeah. So most of that's kind of behind us now. Now, how, how many books do you think you want to get under your belt and published of your own before you open things up and say, okay, we're ready to start publishing books from somebody else? Well, I mean... <laughs> I mean, in terms yeah, no, not to get ahead of myself, but it kind of really depends on on how lucky we would get with with Monster Volume One and Two. Like, if if it just I don't know if it, if we have like an Andy Weir kind of story where it gets picked up and that's your first one and now it's a bunch of movie, then I think you can really sit back and kind of choose what projects you want to invest in. And if we had you know that amazing kind of success. Um, then I might reevaluate, do I just purely only concentrate on my own work or do I do my work at a slightly slower rate and build up our, our publishing company on the side? Because, um, yeah, I, I think unless I have a few more books under my belt as well, it's, it's, we need those credentials um, as a publishing, as a small label publisher. Does that also figure into your credibility as the owner of the of the imprint? Because... You've got oh, who are you? You've only you've yeah. only published one book or two books yeah. or six books or whatever. Um, it, is that? It, I, I would imagine that's that's kind of sitting in the back of your head. You you want to get a little bit more experience, cachet, credibility, uh, and that sort of thing before you take on other authors. But it sounds like, like you said, you've got the groundwork laid. You you've got the people around you. Uh, it, it's, it sounds like your, your, your proof of concept, as it were, uh, has been tested, and now we just basically see how well the book does. Exactly. That's pretty much exactly where we're at. Um, we've you know, chosen a different path, and now the question is, and I haven't even said this in my Periscope talk, like I'm a case study. Um, it either works or it doesn't, and if it doesn't work, well, then, then I can kind of dissect which reasons and given the reviews that I'm getting, I know it's not the writing that would be the problem. Yeah. Um, it's more just now really is like, how can we market that? And if we can market that successfully, we can kind of 
and that's been part of the, the proof of concept, then would that's something we might be able to package and present to other interested authors. Um, yeah, this is the route that I went. You can literally follow the steps that I went through. I mean, you could probably copy it if you want to do, but as we discovered as, as an author, like you, if you want to go self-pub and take all this stuff in-house, you're not just an author anymore. Um, you're wearing 10 different hats or juggling 10 different balls and yeah, it's, it's, it's hard. Um, and yeah, building a team is kind of core to that. So yeah, we could loan out the team, introduce people to other, oh yeah, it's, it's very much, yeah, how does this, how does this work? And if it works, then we've kind of proven that it's, it's viable and maybe others can follow in our footsteps. No. Well, uh, good luck with everything. The book is called Monstre. Let us uh, put that up here again so people can see uh, the title. And uh, it is uh, Duncan Swan's debut novel. Uh, and I, it is out now. Uh, is that right? And it's, it's, out now. it's yep, ready it's, to go. And You can grab it on Amazon. You can order it through Barnes & Noble's. Barnes & Noble. Um, it's also on uh, KDP Unlimited. So if people have that kind of subscription, they can go and read it. Okay. Funnily enough, that's been like my, my worst habit at the moment is, is checking my author page and, and Author Central and just kind of seeing how it's ranking, yep. who's reading it. So yeah, it's, 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 fail, it's available through a few mediums. And you've got this, uh, this 45 minute periscope here on the making of the book, the process of putting this thing together. It has a number of interviews from your team uh, so that's over on Twitter, and uh, your your uh, main website, of course, is uh, duncanswan.me.me is where you can find all of that, and uh, hopefully uh, the book does well. Good luck with it, and we'll talk uh, next time when the when the second book comes out. We'll have you back. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. All right. Good luck. Uh, Duncan Swan, the, the novel Monstre, out now. Go check it out, and uh, maybe maybe we get us a copy and, and do a review. I will definitely send you several. All right. Thanks very Thanks, much, cheers. sir. And cheers. Take care. The, uh, the website for Duncan. Uh, see, now those of you who are listening uh, to this as a podcast, you completely missed all of the, all of the thing that I said uh, that nobody else heard. So... DuncanSwan.me, and tonight on the H2O podcast, Mr. Harvey and I will be talking about movie scores, film scores, the music of genre film and television going back a ways, talking about the evolution of movie scores. So we do invite you to check that out. Katie Nicolau will be our guest on Wednesday. She's a meteorologist who occasionally does the forecast in cosplay. So we'll be talking to her about that. And then on uh, Thursday, we will have, I held the book up, nobody could hear what I was saying, Felix Hotzschapel, uh, who is the author of Catch-42, is a new book that's coming out. So we'll be talking to him. And tomorrow we'll be talking about the AT&T, Time Warner, Warner Media Discovery bombshell and uh, the fallout from that. I'm going to try to put together a panel for discussion so there's more more insights than what I have. I mean, I certainly can have an opinion, but it's it's relatively limited in its scope. So uh, we do invite you to check that out. And any of you who are new to the channel, we do invite you to uh, subscribe, have your notifications turned on, uh, probably with a little bit more frequency than I have the microphone turned on, and you guys should do just fine. So thanks very much for being here, everyone. We'll be back tomorrow. There are four lights. This has been a presentation of Sci-Fi For Me Radio. Copyright 2021 by Flaming Dog Media, LLC. All rights reserved. No portion of this program may be retransmitted without the express written consent of Flaming Dog Media.